Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. It really, it, it permeates everything. And, and that's one of the big themes is like, I want this thing to happen and it's not happening. And a lot of the people who I see are, like you said, like very type A, they're like, I, you know, had this life plan. I had, um, I kind of had it planned out. I would get pregnant in a few months and then I would be able to take off this time. And, you know, they have the whole plan. And so if we can kind of conceptualize the whole thing as a loss that we're going to need to grieve the future that we had planned. Hello, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctor in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Nichelle Haynes, who is a perinatal psychiatrist with a special interest in infertility, pregnancy, and early parenting. She works as a psychiatrist at Reproductive Psychiatry Clinic of Austin, where she also serves as CEO and partner. She is a wife and mom of two energetic young boys who keep her busy. She has also recently co-founded Aluma, a self-discovery workbook for moms. Nichelle, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am too. And, you know, I, um, as we were talking uh, before we started recording, um, I have your Aluma Self-Discovery Workbook for Moms. Um, you launched it last year, and it's a phenomenal uh, journaling activity for moms um, to inspire uh, creativity, space, uh, and self-care. And I just want to throw it out there that I just, I'm so glad you, that you created it. Um, it's such a great resource for moms and I absolutely love it. So just wanted to give you a quick shout out for that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love it too. It was really a passion project and a fun project to do. And it comes out of a lot of the things that I see in my practice in day-to-day life. And, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a beautiful product. It's a very helpful product. I am very proud of it. And I'm, thank you for the shout out. I, yeah, I just, I love it myself. And I really, I could talk about it all day, but that's not why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is true. And, and we could, and I'll have to have you come back because I'd love to hear, I think moms can never hear enough of how we can take care of ourselves, how we can create uh, you know, mental and emotional space and how we can create self-care in our lives. And I always like to dispel the myth that self-care has to come from a day at the spa or anything that costs a lot of money or takes a lot of time. I feel like there's a lot of micro practices that moms mm-hmm. can do just throughout their the day at their own home that doesn't cost money, um, like activities in your workbook. Um, so yes, we'll have to come, I'll have to have you come back and we'll talk just about that alone because I think that, like I said, moms never have enough resources and reminders on how to do that. I totally agree. I mean, that's part of the reason that it exists in the world now is because there's, there's so much need for it really. I agree. Exactly. 
Exactly. hundred percent. Um, but as you mentioned today, uh, we're going to dive into a pretty, tough and touchy topic. Um, We're going to be talking about infertility. And I know that's something that you specialize in. And it's something that I personally went through um, a few years ago. And it's not an easy topic to talk about. Uh, I think it takes courage, vulnerability, and strength. And typically infertility, uh, I'm sure as you know, in your own practice, um, is typically a very personal struggle. And it's experienced behind closed doors, alone and silent. I know when I suffered from secondary infertility, I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. I felt broken. I was fearful. Uh, I was angry and I was confused. And, you know, not being able to conceive a child, it it can be very, very uh, mentally draining and emotionally painful. Uh, It's like a living nightmare that repeats over and over again, you know, during your Mm -hmm. monthly cycle. And, um, I just, I want to bring light to it. I want to, to, um, try and break the stigma around it. And because I know I, I, at the time I felt like I was, but I know I'm not the only one. And as you know, in your own practice, there are so many people out there suffering for, in, from infertility that I just really want to talk about it and then talk about how to cope through it because, I didn't have those tips when I was going through it. And I just hope anyone who's listening that is going through that or maybe going through that in the future has us as a resource to to get through it, right? Right, exactly. I mean, I think you hit it just exactly right that it's very isolating, confusing. It's very sad. It makes people angry. Um, there's just a whole wide range of emotions that come with it. And it is not talked about. And that's part of the reason that we're here. Um, And I want to really mention here that even if you're not experiencing infertility, that you still want to listen to this episode because I guarantee you that you know someone who has either experienced this in the past or is currently experiencing this. And to hear the perspective of someone who has experienced it or to hear how it may impact people could be really helpful for the people around um, people who are experiencing infertility to be able to provide them some support and some understanding and say like, yeah, you know what? You're not alone. So even if this isn't you specifically, you still want to listen to this because you could be a support person for someone who's struggling. And I think that that is, um, you know, a really beautiful thing. So still listen. Yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you said that actually, because, uh, for two reasons, one is, as I mentioned, I went through a secondary infertility, um, um, for about a two, almost two years, maybe, um, that I, that I went through that. And the first time when I, I, my first um, child, I got pregnant right away. And so I never thought I'd go through infertility because it happened so easily the first time. Um, so I never thought I was. So even like you said, for the people out there that already have a child and haven't had, let's say, their second or maybe even their third or fourth, um, that there may still be a time where they will um, struggle. And this is good for that. And then also you, you brought up something really helpful. And I have it as a question for later on, but we can kind of just jump to it now is things not to say to someone who's trying to get pregnant, right? Because we don't know everyone's mm-hmm. situation and you never want to assume something. And I feel like there were certain things that others said to me when I was going through that, uh, that were very detrimental to my mental and emotional health. And so, as you mentioned, we're going to get to that in a little bit of things not to say to someone who's going through an infertility struggle, or if you don't even know if they are, <laughs> um, right. you know, there's some things I think we say sometimes because we mean well, we have good intentions, um, but it could really, really um, cause detriment to the person that's going through this type of struggle. So we'll, we'll, we'll jump to that later, but okay. 
if you could start by sharing, you know, how you would describe, I know we, we touched upon it at the very beginning, but how would you really describe the mental load of someone going through infertility? What does that look like in your practice? How, how do they usually come to you and present to you? And, um, you know, w- what does that look like for them? Well, I think there's not really one specific, you know, it looks this way or that way, that it can really impact people very differently. But the the overall theme is um, struggling with a lack of control, struggling with um, kind of some themes of like bodily autonomy in a way that like you want your body to do something and it's not doing that thing. And, um, there's a lot of grief, sadness, fear, uncertainty. So I would say those are like kind of the general themes and that they may, uh, you know, kind of put themselves in different places in someone's life. And it can really be all consuming that, especially if you're undergoing like IVF or, you know, if you're having procedures to kind of understand why you're experiencing infertility, that that can really take over a significant portion of your time and your energy and your finances, um, that it can really impact every aspect of life that you're having to take time off work that you're, you know, if you have kids already that you're trying to find someone to care for your kids while you have an egg retrieval or, um, you you know, it's really expensive. So what are we going to put off or how are we going to finance this? Or there's so many different aspects that it kind of seeps into your life. It's like, you know, it's just, really, I, I get the image sort of like of, an, of a cloud. It's just like settling onto everything. You know, it's like really foggy yeah. and- Encompassing, um, really, right? Yeah. It's just like, it, it kind of just permeates everything. And um, yeah, it, it can impact people very differently. But th- those are kind of like the themes that, that sort of come up uh, when I'm talking with my patients about infertility specifically. Yes. And, and you talked about something, you know, that very similar to, you know, when I experienced it, you know, I think for me as a very type A personality, mm-hmm. I like things planned out, I like to know um, what's happening or it causes me some great anxiety if I feel like things are um, ambiguous, if I feel like things are uncertain. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tend to, to panic a little bit. And I think during that year and a half to two year struggle that when I was going through through infertility, I, I had that sense of uh, heightened anxiety and heightened panic because I didn't know if and when it was ever going to happen. And it was a constant um, struggle in my mind at all times. I I don't think there was ever a day I didn't think about it. So, you know, talk about all encompassing like a cloud. It was like this little infertility cloud that was over my head all the time. And, and then of course it didn't help that everywhere I went and everywhere I looked, it felt like someone was announcing Mm -hmm. a pregnancy on Instagram or a friend at, you know, at my daughter's school was having their second or, you know, it seemed like it was so easy for other people to get pregnant. And I kept just thinking and internalizing it, you know, what's wrong with me? Why isn't this happening to me? And, you know, and all the testing I did said nothing was wrong with me or my husband. Mm-hmm. All the tests came back that everything was fine. My doctors kept telling me and the specialists kept telling me, it's just a matter of time. Well, that wasn't good enough for me mentally, right? So, right. you know, how do you how do you work with that when with your patients and, you know, when they're having that, um, almost that panic or that fear of just not knowing. And it, it's almost like the more I tried, the less it happened because I was mm-hmm. so anxiety ridden that it's almost like my body couldn't even function even physically properly to even conceive a child. 
Um, but but what are your thoughts from your expertise? Yeah, um, it's very. It really, it, it permeates everything. And, and that's one of the big themes is like, I want this thing to happen and it's not happening. And a lot of the people who I see are, like you said, like very type A, they're like, I, you know, had this life plan. I had, um, I kind of had it planned out. I would get pregnant in a few months and then I would be able to take off this time. And, you know, they have the whole plan. And so if we can kind of conceptualize the whole thing as a loss that we're going to need to grieve the future that we had planned. Mm, Yes. Right. So it's a loss of an idea that we're going to need to grieve that idea and, you know, treat it as any other grief. You're going to need to cry about it. You're going to need to, you know, pivot. You're going to need to take some time to rest and take care of yourself and understand why that piece was so important to you to happen in that way for you to be able to move forward with a different plan. Just as if like, I don't know, you didn't get into the, you know, educational program that you wanted to get into. You're sad about it. You grieve it. You're like, I really liked it because it was this. I'm going to try to find something that's really similar, right? We can take that same idea of like grieving a thing you wanted and apply it to infertility specifically. Like, you know, I wanted a baby and I, you know, I had this idea of what it was going to look like and the nursery and all of the things that we can grieve all of those pieces. And I think one of the difficult pieces about infertility specifically is that that process takes time because the idea that you had or the plan that you had was pretty long-term, right? So you may get to an anniversary of a certain thing and say, oh, I was supposed to have a one-year-old at this time, or, you know, I was supposed to have, you know, a baby in this nursery. So there's lots of reminders that come in that require continued um, grieving and they required continued understanding and processing. So I think that's also one of the, the, you know, difficult pieces about infertility is it's not just one specific thing, right? It's like all of the things that come in, which is, it's just so astonishing to me that this is like not talked about more because it's such a big thing. I mean, one in eight couples will experience this and the numbers are higher in a lot of, you know, different populations. Like, you know, if you're, um, a same sex couple, then of course you're going to have to have some assisted reproduction or, um, female physicians, one in four will have infertility. It's just astonishing that we're not talking about this because it's so permeating into everything for so many people for such a long period of their lives or, you know, a long period of time that they need to kind of grieve. Like, how are we not talking about this? Absolutely, you know, percent, hundred percent, and you know, and and it's it's really a disservice to, you know, our our community to not to society to not, you know, talk about it more because you know, like you said, with those type of statistics and those types of numbers, and I feel like that's that's the crazy thing is that especially when I was going through it as educated as I was, and you know how I've talked about it in the mental health field before, I felt so alone. And it felt like no one understood, not even my own husband or not even my own mother. You know, it seemed like no one understood unless they went through it. 
um, and they were struggling at the same time. Not the people that had gone through it and then maybe eventually had, you know, a baby, but it was someone who was in the middle of the struggle, in the middle mm-hmm. of the pain. That's the people I wanted to connect to. Those are the people that I wanted to um, maybe just dwell with, right? You know, just mm-hmm. say, I want, I, I, I know you know how I feel and I just want to wallow in my own sorrow with you, you know, and mm-hmm. with each other. And that's hard to do because I feel like when people do talk about it most is after the fact, um, right. because of maybe the the stigma that goes with it, the embarrassment, the shame, the things like that. So, you know, and obviously it's, it's a, it's a dual struggle. It's the physical struggle because it's obviously the physical part. We sometimes may not even be able to control so much. Right. Um, I know there's things out there and, and you can share with your own, um, you know, expertise on maybe things that you can eat or things that you can do to try and help your body physically get more prepared or ready for a baby. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and whether you're getting assisted reproduction or not, um, you know, I know there's things out there and, you know, old wives tales and things that you can do. So yes, we have some control over maybe what we eat, how much we sleep, how much we're taking care of our bodies, how much we exercise. You know, we have control over some of those things. But physically, at the end of the day, the reproductive part, we can't force, you know, even to make IVF work or, you know, any type of, of natural type of reproduction. So but I know something as a mental health therapist and as a psychiatrist on your end, I know there's things that we can do mentally and emotionally to help prepare our bodies more um, for that. So, and I feel like anxiety, the more you struggle with infertility, the more the, the heightened anxiety happens. So mm-hmm. I think as a, as a mental health therapist, I want to focus for a minute on how, what we can control anxiety wise and how, you know, people who are trying to conceive a baby, how do they minimize their anxiety and, and take control over their anxiety as much as possible to get their bodies mentally and emotionally prepared for reproduction? Do you have any um, suggestions on that or what you tell your patients when it comes to how to lower their anxiety when they're going through something like this? Yeah, of course, it's very specific to what the specific anxiety is person to person. But I I would say in general, we need to recognize that the anxiety is a symptom of how much it matters to you, right? We're not anxious about which pen we choose to write on our papers, right? Like it just doesn't matter. We'll just take a pen. It doesn't matter. Exactly. But we get anxious about the things that matter to us and seeing it more in that context rather than, um, you know, I I need to do this, that, or the other, or I need to be perfect in my eating to get the results or um, kind of those themes, of course, those aren't helpful. So if we're we're going to be able to understand anxiety as a reflection of desire rather than as a reflection of our ability to control something. Right. Right. So um, the yes. more anxious we are about it, you're not going to control the outcome anymore. True. The more anxious you are about it, the more you can say, this really, really, really matters to me. Thank you so much, body, for reminding me. I already know. I know this matters to me. I have my mantras, right? Like I know I'm doing everything I can. My body is in a good space. I am healthy. I am doing everything I can. Thank you so much, Anxiety, for reminding me. I just don't need you around right now. Um, and to, to kind of say like, thanks, but no thanks to the anxiety can be really helpful freeing to validate right. it, right? Like that's one of the very most important things we can do is validate it and just say like, nah, 
I'm not, I'm not leaning into that right now. Um, that's one of the things that I find when I do therapy with my patients to be really helpful. Um, I love that. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, it's not anything that we have to necessarily, uh, you know, put a lot into, you know, it's, it's, it's thought stopping, right? It's, it's saying, you know, like you said, no, thank you to, to the anxiety and externalizing it. So it's not, we're not internalizing it as it's in us. We're saying, no, you know, we're going to, we're going to put a name to it. You know, it's this anxiety (laughs) that's attacking us and we're just going to say no and kind of push it away and push it away from us. Um, Mm -hmm. I think externalizing it is, is, is great. And, and, and going back to even what we talked about the beginning with self-care, you know, um, do you, I'm assuming that you'll, you also maybe suggest some ways that, you know, people going through a lot of anxiety and, and going through infertility can do throughout their day. Um, do you ever suggest any type of, um, you know, meditation or mindfulness practices or things like that, deep breathing to help if someone's having some some panic or some, some anxiety um, during this time? Yeah, absolutely. I think mindfulness exercises are great if you're in a space where it is possible. If you're really dysregulated, mindfulness exercises are going to be really hard. So it kind of depends on where you're starting. Um, But definitely taking a few deep breaths, you know, every hour or, you know, just setting a timer on your phone to say, you know, every two hours, I'm going to take one minute, one minute to sit quietly and take slow, deep breaths can be really be very regulating for your nervous system and kind of let it come down from all the adrenaline, all that um, excitatory stuff that comes with anxiety, you know, like heart racing, sweating, um, your mind is racing too. If, if you take those slow, deep breaths, you can kind of re-regulate, come back to it. And <clears throat> a lot of people will find that Taking one minute doesn't feel overwhelming. It's not like adding another thing to the things that you're supposed to be doing, right? We can find a frequency that's like, oh yeah, that doesn't feel like a whole lot. I can do that. Whether it's once a day, once every couple of hours, you know, right before bed or whatever that even just those few number of times taking those slow deep breaths for one minute, two minutes, however many minutes and just kind of being with it can be really, really helpful. Um, if you're starting from a place where you're like kind of already doing those things or you don't feel super dysregulated, I think you could do it maybe a little bit more. And I also really love yoga. I think it's really a nice um, combination of a lot of the things that are helpful, right? The slow, deep breathing, the slow movement, the like quietness, the being with yourself, Um that all kind of comes together really nicely to be really effective for anxiety. Um, Especially during times like this, where the anxiety, the things that are bringing us anxiety aren't going away. Right. Right. Like we may have other things where, you know, you might be anxious about a presentation, the presentation's over, you're not anxious about it anymore. Like this thing is very permeating, like we've talked about. So having something that's like kind of a practice that gives you that space to kind of be free of the anxiety or like kind of feel some of the anxiety and let it be and let it go um, can be really, really nice. So I like yoga a lot. If someone can tolerate it and they like it too, I think that that's really wonderful. Yes, I anxiety. do too. 
I love yoga. Um, I just mm-hmm. love movement, you know, the stretching, like you said, the relaxation, mm-hmm. the breathing. Um, and I think they're the, what you mentioned are some really great natural ways to cope or self-care, you know, when someone's, you know, anxious and going, you know, and also going through an infertility struggle. Now, as a psychiatrist, um, I know you're able to recommend medication and, you know, do mm-hmm. man, uh, medication management. If someone is going through this and they want to or need to possibly um, have something more, um, maybe some type of anxiety medication or, you know, whatnot. Um, what do you normally suggest to your patients when they're going through that? And does that, does any type of, um, anxiety medication maybe, um, prevent them from having children or, uh, if you could kind of dispel some myths when it comes to, um, anxiety medication or even, you know, um, antidepressants, things like that, when someone's going through a, a, a trauma or anything, and they're also trying to start a family, um, what do you normally suggest if they need more than, um, you know, these natural ways that we talked about coping with anxiety and depression? Yeah, um, it, it's really a risk benefit discussion that we have together and, you know, provide a ton of information about the things that we're considering and let the patient make the decision what's um, most comfortable to them. Um, for infertility specifically, the goal is to have a pregnancy. The goal is to have a pregnancy and have a healthy baby on the other end, right? I, you know, if you're going through infertility, that is kind of inherently your goal. And so remembering that depression and anxiety are not neutral in a pregnancy, that they can be actually very detrimental to the health of a pregnancy, to the health of the mom, to the health of the baby that will be born, um, is a really important piece to remember that there are there are lots of times where the risk of depression, anxiety, or other psychiatric illness during pregnancy far outweigh the risks that we know about certain medications. It varies medication to medication, person to person, risk to risk, right? But there are a lot of times where medication is actually much safer than being severely ill or even moderately ill during your pregnancy. So we love it when people are stable prior to pregnancy. Um, And if that is during a time of infertility, so be it. That is okay. There are some medications that we, you know, try to stay away from. um, But this is really done in conjunction with someone's infertility specialist, their reproductive endocrinologist, um, that we have these discussions. Maybe we don't start in the very middle of a cycle because they really don't like it when we change um, things and variables in the middle of a cycle. So, you know, we may talk to the REI and we may say, okay, after this cycle, we'll start the medication. We'll wait a month, get them stable, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next cycle. Um, so it really just kind of depends where they are in their journey and what their goals are. But definitely there are times where meds are safer. They really are. Right. <clears throat> Right. And I, I, and, you know, just on that note, you know, I know this is more of an infertility discussion, but as you said, the goal would be to have a pregnancy and a healthy pregnancy. And I know sometimes even after an infertility struggle, I'll speak for myself, that I had after I got pregnant, it wasn't like that anxiety stopped. I mm-hmm. still continued to have anxiety throughout the pregnancy because it took so long to get there that I was so worried that something was going to happen, mm-hmm. you know, while I was pregnant, you know, so it's, 
it didn't stop. And I know a lot of times I've had conversations with other moms that, you know, um, you know, even if they were on some sort of medication prior to the pregnancy that they wanted to stop during the pregnancy because they, no. right. Um, I knew, you knew we were going to go there and, you know, what is your advice on that? Cause you know, especially if someone's been on it for a while and, and might need it, um, you know, that people want to stop that medication, you know, just because they're pregnant. What, what is your usually advice on that? In general, my advice would be do not stop your medications during pregnancy. Um, yeah. That your life, just in general, is not likely to get any easier during pregnancy and definitely is not going to get any easier after pregnancy. Um, your sleep will be disrupted. Your hormones are going to be like the most disrupted that they could ever be, possibly ever. Um, that all of that combined means that this is not the time to be taking risks with your mental health. That when so a little um biology anatomy medical stuff right um, during pregnancy you have baby you also have the placenta and the placenta helps produce progesterone and progesterone is pro for you know and then mm -hmm. just just is uh pregnancy so it's pro pregnancy hormone right it keeps you pregnant so after delivery you deliver the baby you deliver the placenta then your source of progesterone is gone gone Right. Right. So your body went from the highest level of progesterone it's ever going to have to lower than pre-pregnancy levels. Right. So right. you have this huge hormonal change, which absolutely impacts your mental health. We don't understand exactly how and for whom and everything uh, associated with that, which is the whole other, other discussion, but it definitely has an impact on your mental health. So you have this huge life change you have a physiologic event, you have a hormonal event, you have, um, you know, no sleep and potentially major surgery and potentially other complications. Like this is not the time to be messing around with your mental health. That exactly. if you were on, if you were on the medicine for any time and you had a positive pregnancy test, your babies are exposed. Mm, true. Okay. You know, there may be medications that we would say like, you know, we definitely want to reduce risk here and we probably prefer you get off of it, but your, your baby's already been exposed and most likely if you needed it before, you're going to need it after and during. So it is so risky to take medications away during pregnancy. Um, I just, oh, it makes me cringe. It makes me so, uh, so worried for so many people that, 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 that is like kind of the standard that a lot of physicians gives like, oh, you want to get pregnant? You got to get off your medications. And I'm just like over here waving this like red flag. No, please don't. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure that, you know, maybe there are other things that we can do for you. We can, you know, ramp up your therapy. We can kind of, um, optimize some of these lifestyle things that you're doing. Maybe we can get you off of your medications, but like, once you're down that road, like maybe we just just reduce our risk a little bit and stay on it. So sure, yeah. yeah. Like you said, it is a big risk benefit analysis that you know that you know people need to do with their with their doctor, you know, with, mm -hmm. with their psychiatrist totally. or you know whoever is giving them their medication. Um, you know, because even I, I know you've talked about recently on social media about medication even during um, breastfeeding. And, yeah. you know, how that affects or if the medication affects the baby. Um, and I know you've talked about that. And again, we can, you know, talk a little bit postpartum here just for a minute. Um, 
because, you know, I, I think, like I said, there's a lot of myths out there, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I'm here and we're here to dispel some of those. So um, so let's just quickly talk about postpartum and then we'll um, wrap it up with um, a little more uh, infertility and what not to say to someone who's going through the struggle and maybe some resources on how people can can get some, some extra support um, mm-hmm. when they're going through it. But um, postpartum wise, the two things I want to, you know, pick your brain about are one, um, you know, dispelling the myth about medication during breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And two, when, you know, like I said, going through the whole process of infertility and then, you know, hopefully pregnancy and, and, and birth is for me personally, and I've talked about this on um, some other podcasts in the past and just, you know, in my own, um, my own feed and whatnot and blog. But when it comes to accepting the type of in a fertility that you have, accepting the type of pregnancy that you have and accepting the type of birth that you had. Because I know I went, I did all the things, right? I, again, I'm a type A, I had it all planned out. I had this vision that I wanted to do hypnobirthing and I had a doula and I did all the things for a natural birth. And that's what I envisioned. That's what I wanted. That's what I planned for. Well, my body did not plan for that. My body said, no, thank you. Um, You're not never going to dilate no matter how long you're in labor for, no matter how big your contractions are, you are never going to dilate. Like your body just won't do it. So I had to come to terms with that and accept that I was never going to have the type of birth that I planned for or that I wanted. Like goes back to that grieving process you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And I was devastated. I mean, again, all that and all that shame came back, you know, that my body didn't do what it was supposed to. My body didn't, you know, um, mm-hmm. I'm not a real woman, maybe in my in, from my, you know, gender perspective. I'm not a real woman or I'm not a real mom because I couldn't birth my baby the natural way or the way that I was, you know, wanting to, or maybe even quote unquote supposed to, you know, the way society sees it. And I had to have two C-sections and it, it, it I grieved a lot. It took a lot out of me. So not only what did I go through all of those similar feelings during infertility that something was wrong with my body and I couldn't, I couldn't create a baby, right? Um, and needed assistance with that. Um, but then I went through this birthing process that wasn't really the birthing process I ever wanted. So what do you normally suggest to your patients when they're going through that and they they literally have to come to some type of maybe radical acceptance or just some mm-hmm. type of acceptance of that their body may have not been, um, may not be cooperating the way that that they have. Anything beyond what you talked about earlier with grief and the grieving process that you normally would suggest to someone to try and mentally protect their mental health as they're going through that? I think it's a very similar process to what we had talked about before. This is a future that you had wanted and it didn't happen the way that you wanted it. And we can hold all of the complicated feelings. Like we can be angry at our bodies and we can be grateful for modern medicine and we can be um, sad that it went this way and ecstatic that we have a, a, you know, a healthy baby and just holding space for all of the different emotions and saying that none of them are wrong or none of them are bad. They are all there and they are all normal and just really a lot of self-validation. Like, yeah, that's sad for me. Or yeah, I'm mad at my body. Or, you know, I'm whatever it is. And just to to 
let it be what it is to grieve it, cry, journal, process, however you need to. And know that, especially in the, in this, like the birth trauma kind of phase um, of, you know, moving through the therapy in, in birth trauma is to really focus on your experience and not focusing on the complex, the complexities of it saying like, oh, I have a, you know, a healthy baby. I shouldn't feel this way or, um, you know, to, to really let yourself not like your kid for however long it takes, because they're the ones that, you know, were there when you needed, you know, major surgery or to, to, just let it be what it is and know that none of it is wrong. None of it is pathological that the, you know, the anniversary of it coming up or the, you know, all of the things come in and none of it's bad. It's, it's kind of just letting it be what it is being mindful about all of the pieces and knowing that it's going to be a really complex process. And part of it may involve your relationships outside of yours, right? Like you and your baby, you and your spouse, you and your physician. I mean, there's so many different pieces that kind of need to be processed and to just be really gentle with yourself and take the time and and say like, it's okay if this doesn't happen in a month. It's okay if this doesn't happen in a year. It's okay if it takes me 10 years to feel okay with where I am and what happened to me because it's a trauma. Yes. There's no timeline on healing there. Just hold space for all of it, grieve it and be gentle with yourself. Those are the things. I love it. Such great advice. I mean, I feel like we could just end right there. (laughs) And, and it's just, it's like, that was so powerful. Thank you. Um, But I do want to end really quickly, just um, giving some people uh, some resources, anyone who's listening, like you said, whether it's themselves or a friend or, you know, a neighbor or someone else that they know that might be going through this. Um, so we can help break the stigma and we can talk about it more so people won't feel alone. They won't feel um, like they have to hide behind closed doors when they're going through something mm-hmm. like this. Um and then I also wanted to say a couple of things. I don't know if you have any um, that you want to add to this, but I know, like I said, I know we promised earlier we would talk about a few things not to say to someone when they're going through this type of process. Um, I think that a couple of things that stand out to me are, especially since I went through it, the secondary infertility part of it, um, mm-hmm. you know, every time my, my daughter would get a little bit older, she was a toddler at the time. And every time she'd get a little bit older, I'd have people in the grocery store, I'd have friends, I'd have neighbors, family members, my own, you know, mother would say things like, like, well, when are you going to have your second, you know, when, when are you going to give me more grandbabies, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's such societal pressure from strangers and family alike that innocently try, or maybe with no bad intention um, or ill intent, will say things like, well, aren't you going to give your, your daughter a sibling? Um, right. Or if you don't have any yet, you know, when are you going to start having kids? You've been married for five years or 10 years or whatever it is, or you're getting older, you know, you probably should start considering having kids, but you don't know that they've been struggling for 10 years with IVF. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you hear these messages of these assumptions of what a family should look like, what, you know, what your role as a mother should look like, or as a, a wife or a partner before you actually, you know, um, you know, have children. But, 
you know, those those little comments, you know, can can really be very detrimental. Do you have any mm-hmm. to add to that of, of maybe what not to say to someone or or this? Oh, sorry. One more. When when I had um, was going through it and people knew I was actually struggling with infertility, they would say things to me like, well, at least you still have your daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at least mm-hmm. you have one, you know, almost like, well, you don't need to have any more because you have one. So, you know, you're good. Um, you know, without that strong desire that I had for more, but, you know, they would almost minimize it to a certain extent. Um, mm-hmm. because that was the way they could cope with it, you know, or they didn't know what yeah. to say. So they said, Oh, well, you at least you have your one or, you know, yeah. it'll be okay. It'll happen eventually. And I used to get so mad. Um, but do you have any to add to that of maybe kind of just gently what to say or what not to say to someone going through an infertility struggle? Okay. I have three general rules. Oh, good. Yes. Okay. Number one, never ask anyone about their reproductive life. Never ask. If someone wants to talk to you about it, they'll talk to you about it. They'll come to you and they'll ask you, tell you, talk to you about it. Never ask. That's rule number one. Rule number two is always validate. Okay. Someone is going through infertility, say like, that must be really hard. Okay. We don't use just statements. We don't say, oh, you're just you're just going to need an IUI or you're just, um, you know, or at least, right? At least you have one kid. At least you know your body can do it. Well, at least you were early on in your pregnancy. No, no at least, right? Mm-hmm. We're always going to be validating, okay? 100%. And then um, the third one is escaping my mind. Hold on. Okay, we're going to, we're never going to ask. We're going to validate. Oh, be supportive, right? Yes. So the third one is how can I support you at this time? Leave it open to the person who is struggling. Maybe they want a meal. Maybe they just want to cry. Maybe, you know, they want to know that you're there and you're supportive, right? All, yeah. all you have to do is say like, gosh, that sounds really hard. How can I help you? What can I do for you? Never offer advice, right? Because you don't know what they're doing. You don't know like their whole experience. That goes back to number one, never ask, right? Never yeah. ask, never offer advice. Always validate. Um, and just be supportive. Ask how you can support someone. Those are the three, those are like the three or four things, however you want to number them. But yeah, I love those are my general rules. So such great rules. And like I said, I wish everyone could, you know, we could just put that in huge letters in Times Square because (laughs) let's do it. You know, uh, because it's just, it's such great advice. And it, you know, I, I think, you know, like you said earlier, if you're not going through this, but you know, someone that is, that's just great advice to live by, um, whether it's infertility or even a different, different type of, you know, struggle, you know, physically or, or mentally, I think it's just a great piece of advice for, for people when, when they're interacting with others. Um, but that yeah, being said, really. yeah, exactly. Um, my last question is, what what do you normally tell your patients as far as support? You know, whether it's like a support group, maybe finding an infertility group online, are those types of things helpful or unhealthy? Or, you know, should how do people seek support? How does people seek, um, you know, those supportive people that can that can help them through this? Yeah, it's it's kind of hard because there are a lot of like online communities where people who have a lot of anxiety will go to seek reassurance that this is possible for them. So I don't love those type of communities because they can be really like triggering for anxiety and they can like, you know, they're not really your exact situation. So 
I don't love those like kind of like forumy sort of things. If it's helping sure. to you, great, do that. That's wonderful. But if you find yourself like going there for reassurance, or you find yourself going there and feeling more anxious, like maybe that's not the right place. But um, fertility support groups where you go and you like kind of walk this path, kind of like you had said, like you had wanted someone who's doing it right now rather than someone who did it five years ago or something. Those groups are those people and they have them like kind of all over. I think most, if not all states have some kind of version of them Um, and that those are so wonderful. They actually, there's like, I think one study that shows they may actually improve fertility rates, but we're not going to use it for that, right? It's to help you along that path. Having a group either that's facilitated Um, by a professional or is just like kind of a group getting together to support each other is really, really, really wonderful. I love those. I, I encourage all of my patients who are going through infertility to be in one. Um, And I think those are really, really good. And then also having an individual therapist can be a great thing too, but I know that's a kind of more nuanced, difficult thing for a lot of people to do. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and I think those those types of groups help too, because going back to what not to say, um, you know, I, the people that I did disclose what I was going through, um, as supportive as supportive as they tried to be, um, every month they would say, "Are you pregnant yet?" Every month mm-hmm. they would say, "Anything new? Any news?" You know, and it almost made more pressure for me. <laughs> yeah. So I had to, I had to tell them to stop saying that. Stop asking me like when I'm pregnant. Uh, I will let you know, right? Um, because once people know you're going through that. Uh, you know, I think they're trying to be hopeful and, and whatnot. Like I said, I don't think they need mean ill will, but it was really hard to be asked every single month if I was pregnant or not, or if, you yeah. know, what the status is. So, you know, just asking someone being a part of the support group, I think is good because, you know, y- you learn that other people will be there for you without that added pressure. You know, you mm-hmm. can just be who you are and you're all going through it. And like you said, if someone wants to disclose what they're going through, they will say, hey, you know, nothing, no news yet, you know, but there's no pressure of, of feeling like you have to, mm-hmm. you know, almost perform for someone, um, right. you know, in that way. So um, wonderful advice. Thank you so much. Where can and, um, people find you? Where can our listeners find you um, if they want to follow you on social media or on your website or, um, you know, just want more information from you and get more advice from you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. Dr. Nichelle Haynes, Dr. Nichelle with an N. Um, that is where I am probably the most active. Um, I don't have a personal website yet. That's coming in the works as soon as possible. Um, but my practice website has a ton of great information. That's rpcaustin.com. Um, that's a great place to kind of if you want to connect with me and you're in Texas, I, you know, am taking new patients. All of our therapists in our office are wonderful. So if you need someone you're in Texas, that's a great resource too, rpcaustin.com. Um, let's see, Aluma is at Explore Aluma on Instagram or explorealuma.com. If you want to look at, you know, kind of going through that journey yourself, that's another great resource. Um, maybe not if you're going through infertility, it is um, designed for moms, but fingers crossed an infertility version is coming. Um, Yeah. So yeah, there's lots of different places to find me, but I'm probably most active on my professional Instagram at Dr. Nichelle Haynes. 
Wonderful. Well, I love following you. I, I love Thank your you. reels and I love just your advice and your support um, for, you know, it, for perinatal psychiatry. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for your wisdom and your expertise um, and all of your advice. Um, I think it's going to be such a helpful episode for anyone, like I said, going through this or knowing someone that's going through this. Um, I think we dispelled a lot of myths and gave a lot of resources to um, give more support to someone going through infertility. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I really, I could just talk about this all day, every day. So this is like one of my favorite things to do. I'm so glad to be here to give this information to your listeners. And um, yeah, I'm glad you're, we're having this conversation. So thank you so much. Me too. And I feel like this should be the first of many. I'm definitely going to have you back and we'll definitely dig in more next time. Let's do it. That sounds great. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.